This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello and welcome to Killer Innovations this week. We're all about the ideas, creativity, innovations, and where we get an opportunity to introduce you to top innovators who share with you their story. Today we're broadcasting live from Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I'm actually broadcasting from the offices of Boomtown. That ties into our first guest, which is Toby Kraut, who is the co-founder and its executive director. Boomtown is a startup accelerator here in Boulder. Uh, one interesting statistic that I caught off of the, uh, the Boomtown website is, is that Boomtown startups currently enjoy a 96% survival rate. And 78% of them are revenue generating, which is an unbelievable statistic when you think about startup accelerators. So, Toby, before we jump in on that, what I want you to do is I want to give you an opportunity to kind of give a 60-second commercial on Boomtown. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Honored to be here. Um, so, yeah, Boomtown is, uh, as, you, as you started out with, is a, is a startup accelerator. And we, uh, we see ourselves as a... Um, as a third wave accelerator, the modern accelerator formula is about eight years old, and um, we're coming in kind of, um, you know, a, a ways in. And so our job is really to to look at the model and continuously improve it. So we 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 run um, anywhere between twenty and twenty five companies a year through the program. We're now almost two years old, and we do a twelve week curriculum. We invest roughly 20000 in each team. We have a large uh, mentor network, and our mentors really augment the programming. And then we wrap up with a, uh, a demo day at the end of those uh, three months. And we do that here in Boulder at the Boulder Theater, and we typically sell that out. It's about 1,000 raucous uh, people here. And, uh, and that's basically what, what, what we are. So for those of our listeners who really maybe aren't that familiar with what a startup accelerator really is, Describe what an accelerator is, not specifically the Boomtown, but what the whole concept of startup accelerators are. What's it, what are you trying to solve? Yeah. In, in general, um, if you're a seed stage accelerator, you're really looking to find startups around the planet, depending on your geography. We're, we're looking everywhere on the planet. Um, that are look that that have a great idea. Now, again, these are seed stage companies in our case, so they don't have – uh, some of them are pre-revenue. Some of them are very early on. They just have ideas. And we're looking to bring them in and give them um, the tools that they need and the, and, and the help and assistance from, from others who have kind of been there before so that they can, uh, so they can um, really get to the next level. So they have to come here with an idea. They don't have to leave with that same idea. They typically have to have you know, the key components of a founding team. And then they really have to be, they really have to have the courage and the vulnerability and the intellectual honesty to go through a rigorous uh, program um, and, and come out the other side, hopefully, with a, with a business model where they can start to execute and scale. So, you know, Boomtown has the benefit of having learned, being a little bit maybe a, a fast follower in the accelerator space. So what is it that Boomtown does differently than some of the other accelerators that are out there? That's a great question because when we when we started, so we launched about two years ago. We it's a bit in the plans for uh, about five years, and we looked at a lot of accelerators and incubators, over a hundred of them, and 
one thing we found is that, uh, and I don't mean to say this negative, I'll say it positively. There are very, f there are a few accelerators that are doing a really great job, and um, and the and, and the rest I think um, create kind of a challenge for us because there's somewhat of an accelerator bubble right now, and um, and and so, but specifically about what we do differently, I was. Um, I was just sitting in here with our with our general counsel. I'll be cryptic here, but we're doing a we're doing a a big deal with a large corporation where we're going to be providing some of the skills and services that we give to startups to this particular corporation. And the question really came up about what do we what do we protect? What is what is ours? And it was a long heated discussion with with my lawyer, who I dearly love, but it was a long legal discussion. <laughs> well, discussions with lawyers are always that <laughs> way. I, I can give you that piece of advice. <laughs> And, uh, and, and what it came down to is, is that our people and our culture are what's long-term for Boomtown, what's going to be different. And I know that's kind of vague, but the truth is that what we do differently is, is every single session that we do, we're looking to change our model and to improve our model. So we run experiments on our own cohorts. We ran 10 experiments on our previous cohort. And we're never going to have kind of a cookie-gutter approach on what, you know, how we quote-unquote, teach our startups. It's always going to, to change because we're investing in going around the planet and meeting with the experts and the, the people who are writing the books and, and the people who are creating new tools so that we can bring a tailored program to each session. So for us, I think the difference is we're always going to, we're never going to be the same. We're never going to kind of rest on this eight-year model. We're always going to be improving it. So how do you find the companies that you invite to come to Boomtown? Is it a, I've seen you know, accelerators that do the competition things, they do the submission things, some of them are referral in. So how does a company get on the radar screen and then potentially get accepted to come to Boomtown? I think for now anyway, and this is again under under experimentation by us, but for now what we've done is there, there are online portals where people, where, where, where large numbers of accelerators apply to multiple types of accelerators. And so we have an online portal like that. So we get a huge number of companies that come in through that portal, but we also reach out. So we, we make an effort to go after companies that are in our thesis, and we find them in social media, uh, or, we, or when we travel to particular geographies, we go you know, meet with them in person. So it's a real kind of outreach. I'd say it's about 50% outreach and 50% come to us. And then as we continue to, to grow, our, 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 um, our alumni are continuously making introductions to us. So that's also becoming a more and more of a source for deals. So how big is the alumni? You've been around for two years. You've been running the program. So how many companies have kind of graduated through Boomtown now? We're now on our fourth session, and we have 33 companies in the in the portfolio. And who who give us a, a feel for what some of your uh, your pride and joy of those uh, that come through already? Yeah, you know, I um, I know it's like trying to trying to tell you to pick your favorite child. Well, no, it's 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 a good question, and uh, and the thing is, is that I. I really uh, I love entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are my are my heroes. And, and but what's interesting is the ones that fail, I, for some reason I and I quote unquote fail right. But 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 I always I have a real fondness for the journey that they go on. So it's not typically the successful ones. And again, I guess I would put air quotes around success too, because some of the companies that come in are not um, you know looking for the biggest financial exit. Some of them have a real mission they're trying to accomplish. So it's the ones that I think are, are, are the most courageous and fearless. And, and in that case, you're, you're going to meet with two of them here coming up in your other 
segment, a couple of really courageous founders in uh, Bitsbox and Visible, and I definitely have to say that those are two of my... Um, just because they're happy to be sitting in the room. Yeah, I don't want them to, you know, um, <laughs> attack me afterwards or anything. <laughs> but you mentioned, a, you mentioned a good point, though. It is about the whole issue of being fearless, right? And, you know, do you try to filter that through in, in the selection process when you're picking companies? Absolutely. I, I think um, there are so many different things that we're selecting on and looking towards um, to fulfill the thesis. But when it comes down to it, for me, if I had to say one thing, I would say that the ability for a founder to compartmentalize fear and manage it well, not just fear, but also success, and to kind of almost be able to modulate emotionally so that they don't get blind spots based on either fear or, or, or high emotion, um, to me, that's one of the, the, one of the signals for me that this is a company that can overcome all the challenges they're going to face and the successes they're going to face. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's it's the, it's the common issue that holds a lot of people back. You know, I mean, they may, you know, someone's got the idea, but they want to make sure, you know, they've got, you know, five years of cash in the bank and they've got everything else, you know, covered. And so, therefore, that they can go in and launch as an entrepreneur really as a, uh, with no risk, right, or no downside. The risk is it doesn't work out, but they've protected their downside. What I've seen over my experience, though, is is that you do end up with, um, you know, people that uh, that risk also becomes part of the the fire in the belly that kind of gets them going. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, and I actually when we kick off the session, the very first time when the startups meet us, um, we, all of the the Boomtown staff goes through and gives one tip of you know one one tip or one piece of advice and. And mine is typically that, that know who you are, you're an underdog, and that means you have to outsmart, outthink, outhustle, and you have to be willing to take risks that, that, that others in your category wouldn't. And if, if, you're, if you are too comfortable, then you're probably not behaving like a startup. That's great. So if people want to follow Boomtown, where can they find you? Well, right now they can go to www.boomtownboulder.com. That's Boulder with a U in there. Next week they can go to boomtownaccelerator.com. Oh, you Boomtown yeah. Accelerator. That's great. Thanks for spending some time with us. Coming up, I'll introduce you to a couple of the companies from Boomtown, so stay right there. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations. Biz Talk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Companies that get accepted into Boomtown are working on transforming their early ideas into being wildly successful companies. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. So this segment, we're going to talk to one of the companies that is actually in Boomtown, uh, working in the current uh, group of companies. Uh, so today I've got Aiden Chopra, who's the co-founder of Bitsbox. So Aiden, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and introduce, give us a little bit of background on Bitsbox. You bet. Thanks, Phil. Um, my name is Aiden Chopra. I co-founded Bitsbox about a year and a half ago with a guy named Scott Leininger. 
um, I am the chief product officer. I guess the, the first thing that we were trying to solve was how to best teach kids to code. Everybody agrees that coding and kids are sort of a match made in heaven. If we want the next generation to succeed, they should be writing computer code, um, not so that they can be programmers any more than teaching your kids to read and write makes them into novelists, just so that they can be contributing members of creative society who can make stuff. So we did a lot of research into it, and we realized the hard part about teaching kids to code isn't getting them interested. Kids will have fun doing anything for 10 minutes. Um, the hard part is keeping them interested. So our business evolved really quickly from being more than just a website. We're actually a monthly box, a physical box. We're both content creator guys with a, a booklet full of apps that they can code and trading cards with apps on them and stickers and temporary tattoos and a toy. Everything goes with the theme. Kids get it every month. Every month they're learning to code because coding is just a language, and the way that you learn a language is through repetition and practice. Yeah, there's a lot of organizations out there that are trying to crack the nut on this. How do you get kids early um, interested in the, the, the prospect or at least the interest of coding? But yours is a little bit different because you're aiming at a, at a younger demographic than a lot of the other sites and organizations that are out there. Correct? Yeah, exactly. If you don't so here's the thing. It, like I said, it's a language, right? And when do you teach a language? You teach languages as soon as possible, right? Kids are wired for language when they're two or three. Coding's a little tricky at that age because they're not really typing yet or writing. But we aim as young as possible, five, six, seven, right when they're learning to read. That's when they need to be learning to type anyway because that's actually how people communicate now in writing. Um, and as soon as they're doing that, they're sitting there and they're thinking logically and they're learning to put things, operations in order, and they're learning to you know, give variables to things and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, we start as young as possible. So what is that? Is it kind of a K-5 thing? What, what's the target demographic for, for kids in, for Bitsbox? We say our age range is 6 to 12, okay. but then you've got your, you know, your braggart parents who – tweet that their four-year-old just wrote their first app. And we've actually got plenty of high school kids who are doing this as well. The system itself uh, is fun for any age, but our content is directed to sort of six to 12-year-olds. And you've taken a little bit of a different approach. You're not like trying to teach them existing programming languages, if I've read that correctly. It's a take on JavaScript. Okay. So we start with JavaScript, and then we realize that Whereas JavaScript is actually probably the most useful simple scripting language that they could be using, it's actually not the easiest to learn. Um, so it's ubiquitous, but it's not simple. So what we did is we created a, a small API, a library of short commands that are really easy for new readers to type, things like fill and stamp and stuff like that, um, that makes it really easy to kids do exciting graphics and audio work very quickly. They get instant gratification by coding these little apps instead of having to code 50 lines which is really hard for a seven-year-old they can code three lines and they still make something cool so who's who's the customer then are you out trying to beat the bush for parents who want to introduce this that's exactly it yeah yeah it's parents uh, and what we find actually aunts uncles grandparents anybody who's looking for a gift for a kid in that age range Bitsbox works great for yeah, I think my grandkids are still a little young. I got three, two, and a one and a half, so I gotta wait a little bit. Might be, might be. I want to be one of those braggart grandparents. <laughs> I can brag about my my grandkids. But uh, so, do you then create it and target for the? Because I mean, it's a, you know, six to twelve is a pretty wide range. Do you like then have specific? things in the box aimed at those different kids? Every box uh, starts at the beginning. So no matter when you sign up, you get the next box, and there's stuff that's incredibly beginner-level stuff in there. 
all the way up to something more advanced at the end of the book. The idea isn't that a kid would do all of the content in the box at all. The point is for them just to be inspired by something in the book. And so older kids are inspired by more complicated stuff at the end. Younger kids tend to start at the beginning and do that stuff. But really, because they can change and adapt to anything that, that's in the book, um, it doesn't really matter where they start, and they don't have to do everything. So you're up, you're running, you've got boxes, you're shipping them out. Mm -hmm. What's... What is it that you know today that you wish you knew when you started the whole thing? What was the what's what's one of those one surprises? The oh no, I wish I if I knew this, I would have done it completely different. I think it's it's not a gosh, it's not a surprise because I think a lot of smart people told us this at the beginning. But anytime you're publishing something on a schedule, it's a total hamster wheel, which means things that you thought you would have time for, like product testing or asking questions or innovating from month to month kind of goes out the window as you're trying to just get stuff done every month. So we're having an immense amount of fun making this stuff. Our last theme was food that just went out. It was called Food for Thought. I made an app where kids can make virtual pancakes on their iPads and flip them. They have to flip them soon enough that they don't burn, but if they flip them too soon, they're raw, that kind of thing. Um, I think what would really benefit us is maybe to have gone to a two-month schedule instead of a one-month schedule right off. But we started selling a product uh, on Kickstarter, and then afterwards it's monthly, and so we're sort of in that uh, product time frame right now. Yeah, I, I can feel your pain. I started the podcast uh, 11 years ago, started off as a weekly, and boy, as soon as you got a listener base that's expecting it, you, you kind of get caught in that hamster wheel that just never ends. It's, <laughs> a, it's a blessing and a curse. Well... And it's always good about time boxing, right? Yeah. You've got, you got to get it done. So what's next coming up for Bitsbox? What's coming up in the near future? Changes to the business or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So we started focusing on parents, individual kids, but we're getting flooded with requests from educators all over the world. We're, we're huge in Australia right now, believe it or not. We shipped to something like 59 countries already. But educators around the world are asking us for Bitsbox for their classrooms, and that's making us really think hard about how we use these materials in the classroom, design them that way. We're going to be um, offering an educator kit for Computer Science Education Week, the second week of December this year, um, that we're going to make available either for free or incredibly low cost to educators in the U.S. and Canada. So uh, watch out for that on our website. That's great. Hey, if someone wants to follow you, what's, where's the best place to, to follow you and Bitsbox? We're Bitsbox Kids on Twitter and on Facebook, so at Bitsbox Kids. And uh, our website is just Bitsbox.com. Wow, you got the Bitsbox.com. We bought the Bitsbox.com, oh, yeah. That's great. So um, this has been great, and actually I'm going to corner Aiden afterwards because I've got a personal passion on education, particularly K-12. through Great. In developing countries, so I'm going to put the arm twist on Aiden uh, to help me out on that one, given particularly your educator's focus. If you're looking to learn more about ideas and creativity, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. And, uh, or if you're outside the U.S., you can email INNOVATE at KillerInnovations.com. I'll be posting all of the show notes at the Killer Innovation site, so check that out. And when we come back, we're going to meet a second founder currently here at Boomtown and hear their story. It's a little bit of a different uh, business and target segment, but one that's also near and dear to my heart given my uh, my day job. So this will actually be uh, one that I can apply, but I appreciate the time. I'm Phil McKinney. We're listening to Killer Innovations, and we'll be right back. Talk Radio.
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Companies in the boomtown are working on taking their ideas and looking to change the industries that they're going after. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. Uh, first off, in this segment, we're going to go with a, with a little bit of a different uh, company from a different, completely different segment. Uh, today's guest is Achilles Lagrave, who's the co-founder of Visible. So, Achilles, welcome to the show, and give me a 60-second commercial. Now, you got to make it exciting. You know, you can't, like, just softball this. You no, got, no. you got a chance <laughs> with the large listener base here. You get 60 seconds. Tell, our, tell your story. Yeah, no. So Visible is a uh, video marketing platform that makes it possible for small and medium-sized businesses to really target and reach their ideal customers uh, online via video advertising. So this all started um, through our shared dissatisfaction of the uh, video ads we're seeing online whenever we go to CNN or the New York Times, and we end up seeing the same car commercial or the same large uh, cell phone network trying to sell us on this stuff. And um, a few months ago, uh, Alex Bogoski, uh, our co-founder, and I were sitting down for coffee, and he turned to me and said, why can't this coffee shop target me with a killer video ad um, that's pertinent to what I like, which is coffee and boulder? And so started a long process of de-risking this, and uh, it's just been thrilling. So there's been a lot of attempts to try to, you know, address the, this video advertising market. Google was in it for a while, and then it didn't really get a lot of traction, or maybe they did. I'm not, I don't know what their stats were. But it's, it seems to be, it's, it always comes across as being much harder. You know, if you're a small startup guy and you got an ad, like the guy doing the coffee shop, he knows how to roast beans. What does he know about, you know, uh, putting together an ad and getting it out there? Yeah, so... What you're talking about is the video production side of things. Uh, the really amazing thing is that the last couple of years have seen a flurry of innovation in video production. And it seems like every morning I wake up and there's a new killer app allowing exactly these guys to make great video content. Uh, and one of the first things that we were trying to prove out in this is, is, is there going to be enough video content for these guys to put out? Uh, and what we found out was really astounding. Uh, small businesses are making video each and every day. The amount of video content coming out from these guys is staggering, but it does nothing. It goes on to sit on their Facebook page or on their website waiting for somebody to find them. And that's really a shame for them. So how, so they, someone does an ad, they use your platform. Where do you place the ads? Who's your partners as far as... The actual ad placements? Yeah, great question. So we actually pipe directly into 60 different ad networks, and these are the biggest names, obviously, like Google and Yahoo and Facebook. So your videos will be going there, but there's a whole host of other ad networks that are really important in the background that most people don't think about. Uh, these are net networks like 
write role and, and spot exchange, etc. cetera, uh, the guys that are actually putting the ads on CNN and the New York Times. So we actually bridge the network-specific uh, conversation and are able to find audiences across all the networks and then target them on those, um, on those publisher sites. So you'll be putting your ad on Facebook as well as on Google as well as CNN and the New York Times and on and on and on. It's what's called programmatic advertising. And how do you do the targeting? Because, you know, if I'm the guy with the, with the coffee shop and I want to target somebody that's my customer in Boulder, obviously I can say run this ad but only run it for mm -hmm. people in the Boulder geography. Right. Uh, so there's a few ways that we do that. But one of the main ways is we then partner with very large companies called DMPs, which means nothing to the average listener, but think of uh, the NSA not run by the government. Uh, so it doesn't suck. Um, <laughs> so these are companies like Data Logics, now owned by Oracle and IOTA, um, Forbes, um, even, uh, even uh, credit networks. So we even access uh, information from uh, the credit networks to be able to target uh, income rate ranges, etc. So we have a huge bucket of data that we can draw from to really, really be able to target that down to a specific neighborhood and a specific type of person. So how does, how does the business model work? You know, who, how, does, how does the money flow between the person creates the video, it's their ad, you're providing this, this capability as basically the, net, the network of networks to get their ad placements plus the targeting piece. How does that, how does that all work? Right. Uh, so we've s striven to make this really, really simple. So an advertiser comes to our website, um, which is, by the way, free to use. Uh, there are some subscription tiers, but you can go on there for free. Um, and uh, you build out who you want to reach. You give us your video and you give us your budget. And then we turn around and we spend that budget out anytime we find a viewer that fits that description across any one of these millions upon millions of websites and we have a chance to show it there. So the money goes first through us and then all the way down to that specific network. So someone says I wanna I'm gonna spend, you know, a thousand dollars on ads. They budget a thousand. You you get your piece, but then you manage basically similar like an AdWord. You know, I'm gonna well, I'm gonna bid per placement in the case it, of an AdWord. Exactly like AdWord. Okay. Um, so that's um, uh, that's how that goes, and um, generally speaking, we're able to place this extremely efficiently. So the cost of placing that video is actually the fra a fraction of a of a penny in many cases. Uh, so the reach that small businesses have on this platform, particularly when targeting local customers, is absolutely incredible. Hmm. So are you, is, is the site live today? Uh, it's absolutely live today. Uh, we've been in beta now for a little under a month, and we've seen incredible traction, hundreds of new users, hundreds of campaigns. It's been really exciting to watch the breadth uh, of businesses leveraging this, everything from exciting startups out in Silicon Valley to, to lawyers and, and, and car dealerships um, on the other end of the equation. And so what's when you started down this path with this aha moment sitting in the coffee shop saying, why can't this coffee shop target you to the point where you're at today? If you had the knowledge you had today when you started the whole effort, 
what what is it you learned? What would you have done differently from the beginning? You know, we really approach this um, from a standpoint of um, of discovery, uh, both in terms of the idea and of each other as a team as we went along. Um, so I can't say that anything on the business perspective really really surprised us because we weren't really expecting anything specific as we went along. We were just trying to overcome that that next barrier. Um, but something something was said earlier in the show about uh, fearlessness and just the amount of fearlessness and focus um, that a founder has to have in order to be able to execute on their idea is really even beyond what uh, what what you would expect on a bad day. <laughs> it's one of those things that you, it's hard to describe to you, but you know it when you're in the middle of a firefight. That's exactly it's hard right. to prepare for coming into the fight. <laughs> so, who? So, how do you get the word out? How how are you getting the word out for for your service to to your target customer base? Um, well, we're doing that a couple of ways. So we're officially shipping product here over the next week, which is very exciting for us. So as a part of that, you will see a lot of press um, about us. Uh, on the other side, we have found that our first customer is our best referral. Uh, generally speaking, anyone who uses the platform once ends up referring two to three people who end up doing the same thing. So. There's a little bit of a network effect, but we're also using our own platform and all the different marketing and growth hacking tricks that you would expect a startup in this day and age to be leveraging. That's great. So if people want to follow you and, and what Visible's doing, what's the best way to find you? Uh, yes, you can go to www.getvisible.com. Now, because we're a tech startup, we have to misspell things. So that's visible without an E. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, hey, Achilles, really appreciate you taking this time. Um, hey, listeners, if you're looking to learn more about ideas, creativity, and innovation, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., you can send an email to innovate at com, and we'll send you all the notes from this show plus all the future shows. Uh, this has been a great opportunity to come to Boomtown, get an introduction to some of the startup community here in Boulder, Colorado. When we come back, I've got a killer question that's really going to hack your brain and think differently about how your customers are going to think in the future. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Kill Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. BizTalk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Are you ready to exercise your creative muscle? So what is this week's killer question? This week's killer question is, what will future customers' buying criteria be? What is it that the customers will use in the future to select which product to buy? Now, a big part of any business is being aware of and basically responding to the life cycles of the industry, 
but more importantly, the life cycle of your customers. Some of these are easy to see. You only need really to, a cursory understanding of the effect of, of OPEC on gas prices in the early 70s to understand why the auto industry responded by making more fuel-efficient cars. Now, other reasons are harder to see. You know, some criteria can be faddish. They're based on things such as color or brand, and we've talked about that in previous shows. Others are based on, it, on uh, external influences. You know, for years, the cell phone industry fought to offer the smallest, thinnest possible phone because that's what customers wanted. Now these same customers are prioritizing access to the web over the size of the phone, and this totally reversed this trend and basically this unshakable belief towards smaller phones. Now customers want large phones with bigger screens. They keep getting bigger and bigger. Now, sometimes trends can be reversed by something completely outside your control, something that changes the buying decision. Now, what will these same customers want as they get older? So, for instance, if they're on the, on the smartphone and you're doing the web browsing, will full web access and streaming music and video continue to be a priority? Or will your, future, your current customers' needs change as their eyesight becomes worse and their hearing begins to fade? So remember the cycle part of life cycle. You may lose a connection with your customers at certain stages of their lives, but you regain it later. It's like the young man who buys a sports car when he gets out of college. And then he trades it in for a minivan when he marries and has kids, and then finally reverts back to the sports car as an empty nester. Don't assume that a customer's lost forever just because they've shifted their alliances for the time being. If you can maintain some kind of link during the years they are not using your product, you still have a good shot at winning them back again when their needs and their services match up better. We are rarely fortunate enough to know exactly how our customers' needs will change. We simply don't know that they will. The simplest way to anticipate how radically your customers' needs and wants may evolve is to look at the past. For example, think about how our expectations of personal transportation have evolved. When my great-grandfather needed transportation, he relied on a horse um, when he, based on his farm in Kentucky. My father wanted a car. My first vehicle was a motorcycle, basically because that's all I could afford. Simply understanding what products fall into and out of use isn't enough. You need to consider the, basically the intertwined relationships between people and the products that allow their lives and their expectations about their lives to evolve. The more our grandparents and parents came to rely on going wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, the more their lives were built around this very premise. My great-grandfather couldn't have sustained a traditional family life if he lived 50 miles from his place of work. Yet now we assume that that's kind of the standard setup for commuters. Understanding this constant back and forth between products we use and how they affect our lives can help you predict how this relationship will evolve into the future. What will personal transportation look like 10 years in the future? Will new traffic flows and work scheduling solutions allow for greater mobility in this continuation of the suburban lifestyle or pushing it out even into the, the rural lifestyle? Or will people become so frustrated with the ever-worsening commutes that they return to dense urban areas or, in my case, here in Colorado, flee to the rural areas? Could these changes affect your customers' buying decisions? And if so, what are you going to do about it? What other cycles like this can you start to anticipate now? How are your customers building new ways of living their lives based on new products and assumptions? 
Stay close to your existing customers and talk to them, even when they're not buying from you. If they were once a customer, continue to communicate with them. Understand where they're at in their own life cycle so that you can be reintroduced into solving a problem that they have when those needs match with what you can deliver. Now realize that they may not understand their own needs. It's up to you to ask the right questions, killer questions, and get more nuanced perspective on what is driving them in their lives. What are the problems? And more importantly, what are those unspoken needs and those unspoken wants? Their buying decisions are not going to be the same three or four years from now. So long as you keep asking, who are they, what do they want, and why do they want it, you stand a good chance of staying ahead of those inevitable changes. And I can't underemphasize how important this really is. It's not about just who they are, the fact that you know them, or that you know what they want or what they used to want. The most important question here is why do they want it? The problems of a kid in college versus a young family versus a family sending their child off to college versus the empty nesters versus if they get later in life. And I'm talking about it from a consumer perspective, obviously. But it also changes with corporations. Am I a startup company? Am I a growing but still small company? Or do I explode and become a unicorn? Then my needs as a corporation also changes. So life cycles don't dictate just consumer perspective. They also can be applied to the business segments. If you start with a small company, how do their buying criteria change and how do you continue to service them? So the sparking points or the additional questions I want you to think about for this week are, what are the ways your future customers' lives are changing? And how will that influence what they buy? And what will they abandon and no longer purchase as their lives change? So get out your idea notebook out and exercise your creative muscle. Now set aside 15 minutes every day. That's not much time. It's 15 minutes. You, you know, do it during your coffee break or your morning stop for coffee into the office. But spending 15 minutes a day could have a huge impact to you and your career. So go ahead, do it, and you'll learn through practice. So a few years back, I created a two-year a two-hour audio course. You can get it for free by texting the word INNOVATE to 33444. You can also send an email to innovate at killerinnovations.com. Check out the show notes over at Killer Innovations, but also check out the other shows over at the BizTalk Radio Network at biztalkradio.com. And while you're there, you can grab the mobile app and you can listen to Killer Innovations and all the other shows live. If you, if you know an innovator that has a story that others should hear, drop me a note at phil at com. Today's show was engineered by Brandon and Jeremiah. Now it takes two of them to keep me on track. I'm Phil McKinney, and don't let your innovation critics get you down. Keep on innovating. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 